And I'll invite you to turn uh, with me once again to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. We're looking at, we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit um, in contrast to the works of the flesh, uh, these evidencing marks of the Spirit's presence in the lives of those who trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, before we read these familiar verses once again, let me ask for the Lord's blessing. Let's pray. Our Lord, as your word is read and preached, we ask that the Holy Spirit would work so that through the word uh, we might attain uh, the maturity that you intend for us in the fullness of Christ. And we pray that by the work of the Holy Spirit, according to your grace, we, we might more visibly, congregationally, and individually manifest uh, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Well, God's great purpose for every Christian is the same. God predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is God's great purpose for every believer. Not merely that we be saved from sin. Not merely that we be saved from eternal condemnation. But so that we might be conformed to the moral likeness, the image of the Son of God. That is the great predestinating purpose of God for his people. And so, and so Christian, if, if you want to know God's will for your life, the Bible gives an answer. The Bible answers that question for us and tells us that God's will is for you to be like and to become increasingly like the Lord Jesus Christ. That you might reflect something of the moral glory of the Son of God. That is God's purpose for us in Christ. So the question though is, is how does God do that? How, how does God fulfill that great purpose of conforming us to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he begins that work by granting us what the Bible calls a new heart. He, he takes away our, what, our heart of stone, our cold hearts, and gives us new hearts. He takes away our sin-dominated hearts, our self-centered hearts, our selfish hearts, and gives us a new heart, a God-centered heart, with God-centered dispositions. The Spirit comes and, you see, gives us a radical new beginning, a new start, causing us to be born again. And so, by granting us a new heart with God-centered dispositions, 
God begins to carry out his purpose of conforming us to the likeness of Jesus Christ by his spirit, by sending his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts. But of course that's not all, that's just the beginning of God's work in us to change us. Having having united us to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith and by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit having come into our lives and taking up residence within our hearts, God then initiates the lifelong work of conforming us and molding us and shaping us to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit, that is the evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life. What is, what is productive of the Spirit's presence is love, joy, peace, and so on. And what we've seen already is that Paul is painting for us, first of all, a, a picture of the, the moral glory of Jesus. As the man of the spirit, the man of the spirit par excellence, Jesus possessed the spirit in abundance. And this description is a description of the moral character of our savior. And therefore the the great ministry of the spirit is to change us and make us like him. And the the spirit you see is, is the bond of our union with Christ. So that in terms of, in terms of John 15 and the vine of the branch and the branches the the branches are vitally connected to the to to the vine so that the sap of the vine pours into the branches and invigorates and produces fruit in them it is the great ministry of God the holy spirit to produce this christ like fruit in our lives and make it a reality in our lives what Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Christ is our sanctification. And today we've we've reached the third of these graces the fruit of the spirit is peace and I think the question that we need to begin with in order to understand this passage is what kind of what kind of peace is Paul talking about here? What kind of peace does does the Holy Spirit come into our hearts to produce in the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ? Uh, Some people, a lot of people actually looking at the fruit of the Spirit, suggest that the kind of peace Paul is talking about here is, is peace with God. What we might call the Christian's foundational peace. What Paul talks about in, in Romans 5, that... We are, we are justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's what the gospel brings to us, dear friends. That's what the gospel results in. When we, when we trust in Christ alone, it results in irreversible and eternal peace with the living God. Because it brings us into a state of favor with God. We are We are fully accepted in his sight. We can say more happy are the saints in heaven, but not more secure 
than we who believe right now in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Christ Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we are accepted as righteous in his sight. We are counted to be in the right in the eyes of God because we have a righteousness that is not our own but that is received through faith in the Son of God. You know, as as foundational and as basic as that piece is to the entirety of the Christian life, I don't actually think that's primarily the kind of peace that Paul is talking about here in Galatians chapter 5. I say that because nowhere in the New Testament is that kind of foundational peace described as, as a fruit of the Spirit, as though it were something that is gradually produced in the life of the believer. Now, for sure, our sense of peace with God, our assurance of faith can ebb and pl- flow for various reasons, but... When the New Testament speaks of this foundational peace, it speaks of it as a present reality in the life of the believer. We have peace with God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And so while this foundational peace, it is basic, foundational, central to everything in the Christian life, I don't think it's the kind of peace Paul has directly in view. Others suggest that Paul is talking about what we could call inward peace. The kind of peace we see in Philippians uh, chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's another kind of peace we enjoy as as Christians, inner peace of mind in our hearts, even when we are beset with difficulties and challenges and and burdens in the Christian life. The peace of God that, that transcends our understanding, that that literally guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Peace of God. So so we can say that peace is characteristic of the the Christian life. Peace with God and the peace of God that guards our hearts and minds in a world of toil and hardship. But I think in Galatians 5, Paul has yet another kind of peace primarily in view. Just think about this with me. Our context, the context of Galatians 5 should, should determine for us exactly what Paul means here by peace. And it is far more likely, I think, in context to think that Paul is talking about relational or what we might call congregational peace. Just take a look at what, where this statement, this list of the fruit of the Spirit appears. It appears sandwiched between two statements about conflict and rivalry within the churches of Galatia. And so back in, uh, back in verse 15, Paul warned them, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so there was infighting within the churches. There, they, were, they were in conflict. There was animosity between believers. And then look at how Paul closes this section in, in verse 24 or 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see, so the whole context in which these words appear is 
Paul's appeal to these believers to be at peace with one another. So I think in context, what Paul is talking about here is congregational peace and harmony. You know, some people might want to say, well, maybe Paul has, maybe Paul is speaking comprehensively about peace. And if you want to go that route, that's fine with me. But I I think the focus here ought to be upon congregational peace and harmony. Because this is, this is what it means, Paul is saying. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit. This is what it means to live by the Spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul doesn't leave that in the abstract, does he? As this sort of uh, idea out there, but doesn't flush it out at all for our understanding. No, this is what it means in practical terms to live by the Spirit. We do not bite and devour one another. We are not consumed by fighting and conflict. We're not conceited. We're not provoking one another or envying one another. That's what it means to live by the Spirit. It means we are rightly and lovingly related to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think Philippians 2 is a a parallel passage to this. And just listen to these words. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so what is the evidence of participation in the Spirit? What's the evidence of walking by the Spirit? It's being of the same mind, having the same love, being of accord and of one mind, being at peace with one another, showing humility, counting your brothers and sisters in Christ as more significant than yourselves. Paul goes on to say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so, here's what I think Paul is saying to the Galatians. Here are these folks who are devouring one another, envying one another. There's conflict and fits of anger and dissensions within the churches of Galatia. And and Paul is saying to them, you say, you say you have the Spirit. You say you are indwelt by the Spirit. If that's true, then your congregational life will be marked by peace and brotherly love. There, there will be no backbiting, no selfishness, no pursuit of your own agenda. And if your church is not characterized by peace then it means at least that you are not walking by the Spirit, but that you have resorted to the works of the flesh because the fruit of the Spirit is peace. So the main thrust, I think, of what Paul is saying is that where the Spirit of God is present and at work in the lives of believing men and women, he will be productive of unity and peace and brotherly kindness. And what I I want to do now is I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, the the verses that Pastor Dave read for us uh, a few moments ago. And and I want us to reflect together a little more on what this peace involves, what kind of peace God is calling us to as a congregation. 
I won't read it again since we just read it a moment ago, but the first thing I think we need to understand is that peace and harmony in congregations of Jesus Christ is the will of God. Peace and harmony is God's will for us. A disunited church is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. You, you know, might, you might immediately be saying in your mind, well, I know, I know disunited churches. I've experienced disunity in the church. And yes, yes, but it's, it's still an oxymoron. It's a contradiction because there is one church, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And the point is not simply that we are one, but that we are bound together and we are profoundly one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see disunity and disharmony in congregational life is a contradiction of God and a contradiction of the gospel of peace. Peace and harmony, therefore, we need to understand, it is God's will for us. It it is precious because it reflects who God is. A God of peace and harmony. And because it adorns the gospel of peace. This is Jesus' prayer for us, isn't it? John, John 17, he prays, I pray, Father, that they might be one as we are one. That we, or that they might be as we are. That, those are staggering words. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there? That, that our unity and harmony might to some degree, be a dim reflection of the unity and the harmony harmony between the Father and the Son. So God, God being the harmonious God that he is, desires to see that harmony manifested in the, the body of the Son here on earth. And I think, I think we need to take that far more seriously than we often do. That, uh, that quarrels and infighting and, and grudges are the devil's work. You know, they are, they are the, the windows by which the devil comes in to wreak havoc and to work harm upon the church of Jesus Christ. And so we need to remember this and, and have this as a, as a guiding, governing principle that it is God's will for us to be at peace and harmony with one another. Uh, Puritan Thomas Brooks said uh, something like, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing for a wolf to attack lambs. It's another thing altogether when lambs start attacking other lambs. Uh, Secondly, peace and harmony in the church is a spiritual grace, not a natural disposition. You notice how the New Testament describes it. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It is the unity of the Spirit, Paul calls it. Now, you know, disruption in the church of Jesus Christ, it it can result from the work of the evil one who, who wants to sow seeds of discord within the church. It can can result from false teaching and false teachers. It can result when genuine Christians fail to to walk in step with the Spirit and instead rely upon the works of the flesh. 
and discord can also result when other, you know, some who say that they are Christ but have not the spirit of Christ. So, so we need to understand this. Let's, let's be realistic that there, there can and there will be threats to the peace and harmony of the church and, and, and this congregation in particular. But here's what we need to have shaping our thinking about that. If, if we are a congregation of men and women trusting in Jesus Christ, united to Jesus Christ, and, and dwelt by the Spirit of God, our natural disposition to defend ourselves, to fight for our own agendas, to have our own way, to attack one another, to destroy reputations, and on and on and on we could go with the list of the works of the flesh. We need to understand, dearly beloved, that those natural dispositions have been crucified, They have been nailed to the cross. We have died with Christ and been raised to newness of life. Therefore, reckon yourselves dead to sin, Paul says. And so, we need to recognize that instead of resorting to the flesh, we have been born again. We are a new creation united to the life-giving Christ. And therefore, our, our habitual activity can and and must be to promote the peace and harmony of the church, not sowing seeds of discord within the family of God. Third, uh, we see that, that peace and harmony is a spiritual grace that we are to cultivate. It's a spiritual grace that we are to cultivate. Look at the language Paul uses in verse 3 of chapter 4. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What are we to be eager about? What are we to, what are we to strive for? With, with every fiber of our being, what is it that we are called to pursue? We are called to pursue and maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Well, let's just think about that for a minute. How, how, do, we, how do we do that? Let's, just, let's bring it down to, to the practical realm. How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? I think Paul gives us some guidelines. And the very first thing we must do is to remember what by grace we share in common. That's what Paul is doing in verses 4 through 6. He's saying, remember, remember that the unity that is yours in Christ and the gracious work of God. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. You see, unity, here's something we often forget. Unity is not something we establish as Christians. Unity is something that God has established in and through Christ and the gospel. It's, it's God-worked unity, and God, so God has already established it. And as Christians, Paul is saying, we are profoundly one. And so, when there are disagreements or conflict, what we need to do is we need to pause, stop, and remember who and what we are. Let, there, there, there will be disagreement and conflict in the church. And sometimes we will differ strongly 
And Paul is saying, let's remember our unity. Remember what is already true of us in Christ. And if we can learn that discipline, I think it will enable us to think, to think transcendently. To think through gospel lenses. To think above and beyond our present conflicts and disagreements. And so that's the first thing we, 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 we should and must do to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We need to remember that we are one body <clears throat> and united in fellowship with one spirit. But, but how, let, let's, let's, uh, let's just take that a little bit further and develop that. How can, how can Paul, how can he call us to maintain unity? If I've just said that this is God-established unity, then it's true, isn't it, that Christian unity is indestructible. It cannot be destroyed. So how is it that Paul can call us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? And I think it's simply this, that we are called to maintain the visibility of that unity. We're, we're called to live out the unity that we have in Christ in visible, tangible ways you know we're not to say ah yes we're you know we're one in Christ we're brothers and sisters and then you know privately criticize and complain and tear down and undercut the 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 visible unity of the church of Jesus Christ and so he calls us to maintain this visible unity because it reflects who God is and it adorns the gospel of peace which reconciles sinners to God and sinners to one another in Christ. We're to demonstrate that we are the one people of God. Let's keep going though. How, how, do, we, how do we do this in practical terms? We remember who and, and what we are. And then secondly, Paul says, we maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace by exercising humility, gentleness, and patient love. Do you see how he prefaced that statement in verse 3, take a look at how he, what he says in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so we maintain the unity and harmony of the church when we remember who and what we are in Christ. And we maintain the unity of the church when we exercise humility. When we show humility towards one another. When we think of others more highly than ourselves. Now let's be honest, that's hard. And it's easy to say, but it's, it's hard to do. Especially if you, know, you think you know more than the other person. Or you've been a Christian for a longer period of time. To think more highly of the other than yourself. Um, Oliver Cromwell said to the divine right Presbyterians of his day, he said, I beseech you brothers to consider that you might be wrong. I wonder if that's our mindset when it comes to conflict and disagreement. It is our mindset, I, I might be the one in the wrong here, or do we always assume and are we always so sure that we are the ones who are right? You know, I think humility also means counting others as more important than yourself. It's, 
It's the Lord Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, isn't it? He who was in the very form of God, who had every divine prerogative. He was in the very form of God because he was and is God. Did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself to take on the form of a slave. And so we promote the the peace and harmony of the church when we remember who we are and when we exercise humility. But Paul goes on to say we maintain unity when we also uh, are, are gentle with one another. Practice gentleness. We need to be humble and gentle. We are to show Christ-like gentleness to one another. Jesus, Jesus didn't break a bruised reed. He didn't, he didn't smother a faintly burning wick. He, he's gentle with his people. He He takes consideration of their situation and their dispositions and who they are and and what they've been through. He's thoughtful. And we need to exercise that kind of Christ-like gentleness. I think it would probably change much of what is said within the church of Jesus Christ if if we stopped and asked ourselves some questions before we spoke sometimes and simply asked ourselves, is it, is it kind? Is it true? And perhaps this is the most difficult. Is it necessary? Does this promote peace and harmony within the household of faith? Or is it going to sow seeds of discord in the household in which Jesus desires peace? And then we need to practice patience, Paul says, to maintain unity. Remember that you are united. Be humble and gentle and practice patience, bearing with one another in love, Paul says. Do you, do you, see, how, do you see how down to earth and realistic the Bible is in terms of our fellowship as believers? Why, why do we need to be patient and bear with one another in love? It's because every single one of us in this room is marked with a multitude of blemishes. And if you're, if you're, you know, you're in this room today and and you think you're one of the few without blemishes, my friend, you need to, well, you need to hear another sermon altogether. Because the reality is we, we we all are works in progress And it's very easy to point out the blemishes of others. But the Lord says to us, be patient. And bear with one another in love. And so friends, I I hope we realize that it is a very serious thing. To be a disturber of the peace. Within the church of Jesus Christ. Now of course there are issues that need to be confronted. Of course there will be Differences of opinion that need to be discussed. There are doctrinal errors that need to be dealt with. And there is immorality that needs to be confronted in in the church of Christ. And, And woe to us if we fail to do that. At times, we need with grace and out of love at risk of disruption to confront false teaching and immorality within the church. 
But let's be honest, many of the disturbances that take place within the church of Jesus Christ do not relate to these big issues of false teaching and immorality. Many of them are simply trivial matters, matters of personal opinion. You know, we make mountains out of theological molehills. We exaggerate personal grievances. The church doesn't do quite what we want the church to do, and so we, we stir up trouble. You know, I think, it's, I think it's right to say that the majority of problems within the church can and should be handled quietly. And, and if we have a spirit of humility and gentleness and patience, then, then we will spare no effort to never being the cause of unnecessary disruption to the precious unity that we have in Christ Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. We live, we live in a divided society, don't we? Uh, a, a society that is scarred by divisions. And, and those divisions, are, I think, are only increasing. I mean, anymore, it seems like the news is just simply a report on the, the, the cause of different divisions within our culture. My friends, may, may, may the church of Jesus Christ be different than that. May the household of faith maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace so that in this divided and disagreeing world, we would be a united church. My longing for us here at Trinity Presbyterian Church is that the world may see what God does in Jesus Christ, for he is our peace. He is the grounds of our peace with God and our peace with one another. Yes, there will be disagreements. Yes, we will rub each other the wrong way at times, but my friends, if, if, we, cannot, if we cannot discuss disagreements and grievances in a way that exalts the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we might as well just close the doors of this church and go home. We have been called to peace, and we are called to cultivate peace, to pursue it together, to make every effort to maintain it. And we're told here to do that by remembering who and what we are in the gospel of Christ. To be humble and, and gentle and, and long-suffering, patient and loving, bearing one another's burdens in love. Because that's, that's what pleases our Lord Jesus Christ. Because when he sees that in a congregation, he sees the evidencing marks of his spirit at work in the midst of his people. The peace and harmony of the church should be precious to us, dear friends, because it's precious to God and it extols the gospel of peace. And so may the Lord make us and, and keep us as a congregation at peace with one another. A people who, who walk in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. And in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
The peace that we have through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with you. Uh, We thank you as well that you have sent the spirit of your son to dwell in our hearts. And in Christ Jesus, we are called to unity and harmony. Would you enable us by the ministry of the spirit to indeed remember who we are in Christ. Uh, to be uh, humble and gentle and patient and loving toward one another in order that the fruit of the Spirit might be visibly demonstrated among us and that when people look at our fellowship, they would see something of the beautiful character of God reflected in our midst and that they would see something tangible, visible, of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as he works among us by his spirit. Please do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.